FX Omics is brought to you by Bioceuticals Clinical Services. Welcome to FX Omics with Dr. Mark Donahue, your gateway to genetics, research, and technology in the field of personalized medicine. Hi, and welcome today to Amy Skilton, who holds a Diploma in Botanical Medicine, an Advanced Diploma in Naturopathy, and a Bachelor of Health Sciences in Complementary Medicine. She's been in clinical practice for more than 16 years, covering the whole gamut of integrative medicine, but her current focus is on women's health and hormones, natural fertility, and healthy pregnancies leading to healthy babies. Hi, Amy. Welcome to FX Omics. Thanks for having me, Mark. It's a pleasure, as always. I'm, I'm going to get into something with you today which I sometimes feel a bit ashamed of. In the medical profession, there's a whole kind of cowboy industry of fertility management or management of infertility at a very, very technological, high-cost way. And yet there seems an inability of my profession to ask the obvious, why is this happening and could we do better by doing something earlier? Oh, great question. <laughs> so you and Denise Furness have been on um, tour. You've been talking about this. What's the secret? Why, first of all, is infertility escalating in the way it appears to be? Or is that just apparent? Has it always been there and we've just never noticed the infertility before? Look, I do think what we're seeing reflected in the data is mostly indicative of really our lifestyle and current environmental quality. And so I think, you know, prior to the Industrial Revolution, of course, infertility problems have no doubt been around since the dawn of time because our ability to be fertile is dependent on so many factors coming together. But what we do know is in 2018, our diet and lifestyle and chemical exposure amongst a plethora of other things are really impacting our ability to be healthy, which then impacts the ability of our body to produce healthy babies. Right. So health and fertility, it should be obvious, but health and fertility go together. You are more fertile when you are healthier, right? Yeah, absolutely. So nature's always aiming for the optimal and certainly our fertility is very much representative of our health and well-being and our cellular vitality and this conversation really applies to everybody regardless of whether you're thinking about having a family or you've decided you're not going to have a family because whether or not you ultimately conceive a child and go on to have a family, your fertility is a direct reflection of how healthy and well you are. And as an extension of that, I guess your menstrual cycle and your experience of that for women certainly is also a reflection of your health and well-being too. Okay, so let's talk about the menstrual cycle. We take a cursory history as doctors, we say, is it about 28 days? When did it start? Is it painful? Do you bleed heavily? What mm. more do we need to know about menstrual cycles apart from just the almost the basics and the mathematics of it? I think one of the key things is we've fallen into this trap of normalizing discomfort and pain and aberrant symptoms. And 
much like many of the health disorders we see today that fall into the chronic category, because so many people experience issues, it almost becomes normal and acceptable. So I'm referring to things like period pain and PMS most specifically. Um, it is, you know, a bit of a joke amongst women and men about mood swings prior to the onset of the period and certainly um with the sales of uh, medication for menstrual pain, we know there are a lot of women suffering, but neither of these things are normal and are in in fact red flags that are indicating some sort of aberration, dysfunction or imbalance in the hormonal um, monthly darts, if you can call it that. So there's certainly that. And then when you get into the mechanics of it, and certainly the numbers also need to really line up. We have a, I guess, a viewpoint currently, or certainly from what I've seen in my area of practice, that a period of anywhere between 25 and 35 days is considered normal. In actual fact, it's really not ideal. It's normal from the point of view that many women fall into that, or the majority do, but what we're really aiming for is a 28-and-a-half-day cycle in line with the lunar cycle of the of the earth and the planets and we really want to be aiming for a follicular and luteal phase of equal measure and so we want to see ovulation occurring as close to day 14 as possible and certainly no earlier than day 12 or after day 17. Right, so that rhythm is a lot tighter than we kind of give credit for in medicine. We will extend it out anywhere from really uh, from around about 21 to 35 days. We mm. don't pay much attention when people say, I catch up a little bit, it's different lengths. And as well, the PMS is very heavy. Mm. That's not even considered as a kind of medical condition until it reaches a, a certain threshold of almost mental health issues. Mm-hmm. You're saying right. there is a much tighter constraints and if we were to aim for those, we could make this a far more normal part of life without the aberrations, without the psychological changes, without the cravings. Is that possible? Yes, it is absolutely possible. And really, it's a shame that they've become these things like cravings and the, the mood swings, the irritability, the bloating, the breast tenderness, the cramping and extreme pain. It's such a shame that those things have become normalized because it is such a widely experienced set of symptoms yes. because it then no longer becomes something that is A, a red flag or B, is something that is indicative of an underlying issue that really needs some attention um, to to really bring it into line with what it's supposed to be like. Okay, then give me a bit of a hint just as a practitioner, because I've fallen into this trap. The fact Mm. is the menstrual cycle is so variable, infertility is so common, PMS is Mm. so common that we reset normal. I, I did in my kind of medical life, I just assumed, not being a female, that that mm. was how biology kind of programmed the body. Mm. Where did it fall apart? Where where did we start to move away from the tighter cycles, the more um, predictable ovulatory cycle, and into this acceptance of cravings and mood variability? Why Why did that happen? And do you have a cause or some contribution there? Look, I've got a few thoughts on that, um, and I hate to say it. Uh, you can say hate. it to me. I'm a doctor. 
there's we've got the patriarchy yes. as uh, partly responsible in that um, medicine for a period of time was exclusively the male domain. And in combination of, sort of coming out of the dark ages where women were really feared slash revered and the menstrual cycle was not understood and, and women were, I guess, persecuted in many ways and um, the menstrual cycle also was demonised to some degree. Mm. Um, we've also seen with the, the male-dominated medicine industry, much research has tends to be on males and there has been very little interest because there's no real personal interest as a male doctor generally in understanding or um, elucidating what constitutes a healthy menstrual cycle versus one that isn't. And so it's just a really, really tragic side effect of several circumstances that have ended up up where women were all in this boat where where you just you know uh, thankfully the the hysterical part has been <laughs> yes, that was dropped. fun. <laughs> where the uterus <laughs> and, migrated around the body to different areas including the head the concept yes. of hysteria as a rampant mm-hmm. uterus just wandering yeah. around the body parts I, I think that maybe that's one of the more regrettable diagnoses in medicine I think so I think so which regrettably ended up in a lot of hysterectomies also so yeah I think I think there are a lot of factors that contribute to that. And certainly since World War II, we've had an introduction of over 80,000 chemicals into our food, air and water. And so, you know, even though um, medicine, the landscape is shifting dramatically across many modalities, um, we also have got several generations of women now who are affected by exogenous uh, xenoestrogens and other compounds that affect liver metabolism of estrogens and and hormones in general. And so all of a sudden, we're now looking at the landscape of women and taking data as to what the majority experience. And sadly, much like blood sugar levels and cholesterol levels, we tweak these things to sort of capture the majority. And then it's only the outliers that are really considered to be um, experiencing it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. You know, my background has always been in those uh, the organic chlorines and the different types of um, chemicals that were we always thought were just poisons, but it was mm-hmm. affecting health in a very different way, binding to estrogen receptors, binding to you know cortisol receptors, thyroid receptors. Many of the chemicals that we put into our world without testing are in fact hormonal mimics or hormonal oh. antagonists or agonists. And oh. we have an experiment of basically a hundred years of using oh, those chemicals with a major effect being on females, not males. Or as far as we knew, the sperm count drop may well be our, um, our the price we pay for not noticing. But I think it's largely been experienced by women rather than mm-hmm. men. Certainly, given the widespread distribution of estrogen receptors, women are going to be undoubtedly, I guess, the canaries in the mine shaft, if you want to call it that, in terms of xenoestrogens, um, certainly before men, particularly because um, with both in men and women, androgens must also be converted into estrogen mm. for elimination. So and androgen levels go up with certain dietary factors and stress. So in a stressed woman who's consuming a high glycemic diet that contains dairy, you know, you've just got a recipe for excess androgens and an incredibly extreme level of estrogen as well. Is that 
critical to what we're seeing with the fertility issues or the menstrual cycle issues or both? Both, both, and sperm count, absolutely. Right. Um, With regards to the hormonal imbalances that are seen, whilst there are disorders where we see uh, insufficient estrogen in relationship to progesterone, those ones are heavily outnumbered by the reverse, that is either an obtuse excess of estrogen or simply an excess estrogen in relationship to progesterone levels. And so estrogen being proliferative and pro-inflammatory, this is one of the hypotheses is that um, autoimmune disease is more prevalent in women because of the effects of estrogen. We then come all the way on to menopause further down the line where the estrogen drops and has its own set of problems. And I suppose Mm. that's not what you need to cover with fertility. Can you give us all a bit of a sense, if you had a magic wand and you were able to change something, whether that's dietary, environmental, where would you put the effort to solve the problems of infertility and menstrual cycle irregularity? Where's the effort point? Gosh, it would be very difficult to pinpoint just one, but if I could keep it to a a few. (laughs) Yeah, a few Um, is good. I think one of the the number one issues, to be honest, is women's the women's ability to say no and to manage stress well. And I think Dr. Lara Bryden puts it best when she says a woman's period is her monthly report card. And the I guess the experience of each period really represents the health of the last 28 and a half days. And there are so many, obviously, social conditioning things that go in here as well as, you know, many of us aren't raised with good stress stress management tools. But um, certainly just looking at the pregnenolone steel alone, we know that stress will rob um, the body's pregnenolone um, substrate for cortisol production, leaving insufficient amounts for progesterone production. And so even in a woman with appropriate estrogen levels without the influence of, say, exogenous xenoestrogens, is already going to then experience the impact of excess estrogen because it is not being opposed by its partner progesterone. So I think good boundaries and good stress management and sufficient rest are probably is probably the number one thing on that list. That would be, I guess, this diet and also personal care products. Our exposure to chemicals and xenoestrogens would almost have to be of equal importance. Um, as a woman, we use on average around two hundred and eighty. Personal, sorry, chemicals and personal care products every single day. And we know that many of these chemicals and xenoestrogens and other endocrine disruptors are lipophilic and therefore are absorbed very well through the skin, not to mention the things we might breathe in as we're spraying them on ourselves. And so we are literally poisoning ourselves slowly but surely and impacting our hormones Um, with the very things we moisturize ourselves with and exfoliate ourselves with and deodorize with and the makeup that we use. And so that has to be changed and can also be extended out to, say, 
the cleaning products we use in our home as well um, are certainly another large source, although probably not quite as large as personal care. And then, of course, diet. We have the food industry. It's just an absolute mess. And some of the practices and products that are used in and on our food are just astonishing, almost unbelievable um, when you think about the impact that they would have on a human consuming them. And so whilst I understand um, eating completely organic is probably out of reach for many people, certainly prioritizing animal products and highly sprayed produce um, would be a really good start uh, to helping to reduce the load. And that is, of course, I'm assuming that someone has already made the leap to reducing their junk food and alcohol and mm. sugar intake you know, fairly substantially. You probably know this group, the Environment Working Group in, uh, in the USA, ewg.org. They have mm. been on this for years trying to inform the public of what is in the foods, what is in the personal care products, what is in the cleaning products. Mm. And for decades, it seemed like they were running into deaf ears. Now there is an uptake, and I have a suspicion a bit of that uptake is a new generation of women being made aware that there are environmental mm. factors that they never thought they could control or do anything about. Now finding out that their choices are really, really important. Food, personal care, environment, where you live, those factors are, seem to be really critical to fertility and health. Mm, they are. And I think what frustrates me the most about the fertility industry, if I can call it that, speaking more about the, you know, the technologically yes. the technological interventions, um, the the very things that drive fertility and the ability to fall pregnant also influence the health of the pregnancy, the health of the baby, and in fact, the health of that child for the rest of its life. Yes. And so whilst I would never say don't do IVF, obviously it's a gift for many women, it would be remiss of me not to say it's foolish not to do the work anyway, even if right. you're going to go down that route. My wife says that she's a prenatal yoga teacher. There's four trimesters at the very least of a pregnancy mm -hmm. <laughs> and yeah. half a trimester before you fall pregnant, half a trimester on the other side. That's the vulnerable period for mother and baby. And assuming that there's breastfeeding, we still have to be cognizant that some of the pollutants do accumulate in breast milk. It's still the best thing to do, mm. but it is a tragedy of our ages that we do not have pure food and a pure pregnancy for a baby to emerge from. Yes, it is awful because everything that the mother is exposed to will cross the placenta and we know that um, cord blood sampling has revealed 290 mm. different chemicals. And then, yes, of course, breastfeeding is, is the ideal nutrition if a woman is able to do that. But, of course, lowering the toxic load is something that is an ongoing journey, um, certainly for the mother and you mentioned also the preconception period. The health of a sperm or an egg is determined in the 120 days prior to conception. Right. And so there are factors there that also um, play into it. And particularly for men, I know we're talking mostly about women today, but fetal alcohol syndrome can actually be traced back to alcohol consumption in the father up to four months prior really? to conception. So 
there's a lot that goes into creating a healthy baby. It's actually a wonder that anybody falls pregnant these days. I know, I know. <laughs> but if it, if it were not true, we wouldn't be talking here today. So I suppose Correct. we have to live with that. There was the, the so-called truth of the past was the male in the six months before conception is where the focus should be for clean, healthy life. And because the egg was in a metaphase and therefore not very biologically active, the only oh. thing to worry about for the woman was really that they didn't have X radiation, that they didn't break chromosomes. Okay. And I think the truth is now far from that, that there is a oh. lot about fertility for male and female that if you don't pay attention before fertilization, you've got a problem, either infertility or poor pregnancy outcomes. Yes, that's right. Well, the health of the sperm determines the health of the placenta and therefore the longevity of the pregnancy and the well-being of the pregnancy. So for men, um, I think men are often a, really a, neglected a bit in this equation, which is a real shame because they really are 50% of not only the conception but the health of the pregnancy as well. But much of this is for both parties is determined by good nutrition and you know that will affect sperm motility morphology sperm count as well as the health of the ovum as well as the ability of the woman's body to produce all the right hormones at the right time to allow conception to occur and for pregnancy to be maintained and you know it's really simple i think it just gets horribly overlooked because it feels like it's just too simple to be that relevant or that <laughs> yes. powerful. Mm. Well, in reproduction, things that are simple actually work very well over many thousands of generations. So simplicity <sighs> has its own reward there. When you uh, talked about the nutrition, what are we talking about? Is there a standardized diet? Is this personalized nutrition? What is the nutritional intervention or advice that would optimise the likelihood of conception and a successful pregnancy in a healthy baby? Well, certainly there are some general guidelines that most naturopaths and clinical nutritionists would be very familiar with. So when you're looking at someone's macronutrient ratio, you're aiming for roughly 30, 40, 30 protein, carbs, and fat. Mm -hmm. And that is to allow for not only uh, adequate levels of each of those macronutrients, but also low GI um, and blood sugar control and insulin control. Mm -hmm. Obviously, the quality of those macronutrients really matters. And particularly as when it pertains to fats, we want to see you know a rich portion of that being essential fatty acids, especially EPA and DHA from fish. Right. Um, and of course, reducing or eliminating alcohol, reducing caffeine and eliminating sugar where you can, um, are really sort of some of the basics that people can get into. In addition to that, knowing what we know about nutrient depletion in the soils, um, I would be ensuring, certainly it was my clients, that both of them would be on a good quality multivitamin and a fish oil. And in the case of, you know, drilling down to more personalized recommendations for if there's occupational exposure to radiation, say for flight attendants and pilots or um, someone who's a painter or a builder or working with chemicals, looking at antioxidants are going to be key in supporting detoxification. Right. Um, and then, of course, um, everybody is an individual, so you've got to work with their preferences, their possible food intolerances, and making sure they're getting enough of the micronutrients. 
But beyond that, there is, I guess, a new level of personalization that we're able to offer now where we can get insight into how someone's genetics are impacting their ability to have healthy hormones or even down to things like activating nutrients so that the body can actually use them. So most famously, we can talk about, I guess, folic acid and MTHFR and Folic acid, or perhaps folate more accurately, is known to be a critical nutrient for neural tube development and, is, of course, is associated with neural tube defects. And that's probably the most well-known regardless of what medical type of medical professional you're talking with. Of course, if there's a mutation or a genetic polymorphism with the MTHFR gene, depending on where that polymorphism sits, it can have a minor through to major impact of the ability to convert folate into its active form in order to produce really a lot of functions in the body, some of which don't relate to fertility. But this is where you can get even more specific with supplementation to overcome where somebody's genes may not be really playing the best game they can imagine. Okay, so knowing the type of, say, MTHFR mutation, for an example allows you to select something or give advice on diet for, say, methylated folate as opposed to folic acid? Do you give specific advice based on those genetics in your work? Yes, absolutely. It is something that is relatively new that I've only been using quite recently. And certainly um, some of those polymorphisms like MTHFR have been easy to test for quite some time, but we now have a much wider array of genetic SNPs where we can identify other elements that play into the body's ability to have a healthy baby or even just healthy hormones. So MTHFR is obviously an obvious one for yeah, people to and relatively easy to understand compared to the whole cascade of other SNPs. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And we know, of course, that's because of the importance of that folate or the activated form playing into neural tube development. But we also know that B12 deficiency is an equal risk factor for neural tube defects. And we can now test for mutations with the MTR gene, which codes for methionine synthase. And this is actually important, particularly when it uh, is a you look at its, I guess, mechanism of providing methyl groups that are important to convert B12 into methyl B12. And so it begins to widen the net, so to speak, where we can intervene and support somebody's ability or their body's ability to have a healthy baby. And, you know, those two, I guess, are two examples of where B vitamins might be impacted. But to give you another example there is a gene BCOM1 which codes for an enzyme called beta-carotene monooxygenase. Now, this is an enzyme that converts beta-carotene into the active form of A, so retinol and then into retinol or retinoic acid. And we know that beta-carotene transformation into vitamin A isn't great at the best of times. It's around 1.5% based on the literature that I could find. But when you consider that someone might have a SNP in this particular gene, you see that conversion drop even further. Now, we know that vitamin A is critical for the eyesight and brain development of a developing child. 
But further to that, we know that the receptors for thyroid hormone are retinoid X receptors and therefore require vitamin A in order to be responsive to thyroid hormone. So what this means is someone might have normal thyroid blood tests or normal looking bloods, but be presenting as an underactive thyroid or or having hypothyroid symptoms. And where this can become problematic over time is as we see TRH go up to try and stimulate TSH. Now, TRH is not usually ordered in a thyroid panel. Right. Um, And so you might still see TSH and T3 and T4 and even reverse T3 looking okay. But if TRH is raised, it's it's doing that in order to drive thyroid-stimulating hormone up. But it also has the effect of driving prolactin levels up. Mm. Now, prolactin is really meant to be secreted in response to a suckling baby during breastfeeding and is a postpartum hormone. Now, when the mother's nutritional resources as well as emotional and energetic resources are being taxed by a brand new baby, the body in its wisdom has built in this mechanism to dial down fertility and high prolactin levels tend to suppress GnRH and therefore FSH or follicle stimulating hormone, which then of course flows on to low progesterone levels ultimately. Now, if someone's um, this is obviously I'm drawing a very long connect the dot picture here, but if someone has a SNP and BCOM one and they aren't producing sufficient levels of vitamin A for their thyroid re- receptors to respond to thyroid hormone the brain or the pituitary and the hypothalamus can then begin to interfere by accidentally turning up TRH, which then turns down fertility. Right. So there are opportunities everywhere for us to really personalize and improve someone's nutritional status by identifying where genetic polymorphisms might be getting in the way of optimal levels in spite of a good diet and in spite of even supplementation Mm. sometimes. Which raises, of course, the complexity. Just one short story. Back in the day, we used to call it beta cleavase. We didn't have quite the name of the enzyme, but the cleaving of of the um, beta carotene into vitamin A. Mm. We have plenty of patients who turn up vitamin A deficient who are yellow Mm. in the skin from the beta carotene. So you can pick those people that they're eating plenty of the types of things that you give vitamin A. Vitamin A levels are low, and those people clearly have that uh, beta cleavase defect. And it can Mm. be very, very difficult in them to raise their vitamin A levels unless you give them something with vitamin A in it. Uh The other other point that I was going to make is prolactin is also pro-inflammatory in a way. Um, It was raised at the last biocidical symposium that if we're dealing with autoimmunity, having high prolactin levels is a predictor of inflammatory outcomes and of worsening inflammation. So if there is inflammation anywhere, raising the prolactin at a time where there is not breastfeeding, where there's not control of other hormones, has its own yeah. independent risk. So inflammation is really good for anything, and it's certainly not good for fertility. No, no. And I wonder if that's because of the impact of prolactin on progesterone levels. Yes. And, you know, with without that progesterone, you have estrogen running the show. Mm. And we know that estrogen is proliferative and pro-inflammatory. And so I can certainly see how that relationship would work. Yeah. But again, it's really, I guess, a, a sign of an, an underlying 
dysfunction of some sort, which what's that's what makes our realm of medicine so exciting. You're, you know, you have to you're a Sherlock Holmes of the the genetic and nutritional world to figure out why a person's body is doing a particular thing. But I think really that kind of circles back around to what we said at the very beginning. If you consider your fertility and hormonal health to really be an indicator to you of your overall well-being and health status, it then invites you to really look a bit deeper as to why your hormones might be misbehaving. Mm. I mean, hormones have really copped it um, for a very long time. I could, you know, I think almost everybody at some stages blames something on their hormones, but we need to, I guess, reframe how we view hormones and understand that hormones are simply a response from our body to the environmental input they're receiving. And that includes diet, that includes um, stress, what we think, what we eat, what we feel. And so we have a lot more power and control over our hormonal health than we realize. Um, And that's, again, one of my frustrations with you know, technological interventions for trying to have a baby, um, they fail to investigate and address these underlying issues for men and women that are really why they've brought them to an IVF clinic in the first place. Yeah, and I think they also miss an opportunity. Often we do these checks to say, are the babies healthy? And we, we identify that the health outcomes of assisted fertility are often not as good as we had hoped. Because no one ever stopped to ask the other questions about why is fertility low and should this family, this child, Mm -hmm. this mother, the breastfeeding mother, should there be more investigation? Should we go deeper, not just into what we can do to trick the body into carrying a fertilized ovum, but to what can we do to bring a baby into the world ready to meet the challenges that maybe their mother was struggling with all the way along? Well, that's a great point. And one thing I want to point out is the success rates that they advertise are not for take-home babies. I know. It's a cowboy industry out there. And I think if you ask doctors these days what we're most ashamed of, it would probably be that whole fertility industry that Mm. raises hopes, pretends that it's all just a technical issue. And Mm. then, and then, people get their babies and are very grateful after maybe 60 to 80 to $100,000 without ever having been talked to about nutrition, about lifestyle, about sleep. But that's just too common for the high-tech fertility clinics to manage. So many people are preparing for fertility management. When the stress drops off and they think, oh, we're going to have a baby, they accidentally get pregnant without Mm -hmm. even the intervention. And it happened to my sister-in-law. It's happened to many of my patients that the moment the stress is relieved, it's Mm -hmm. like a flood of something goes back and the body says, oh, I know how to do this. Yes, absolutely. And I think um, I can say the same for many of my patients. I can... I can tell you it's it's such a lovely thing to have happen, but it really points to the impact of stress. And I, I guess I really want to point out something else about fertility. When you are bringing a new life into the world, as a woman, you are at your most vulnerable on many mm-hmm. levels. And certainly for a male that's invested in supporting the woman who's carrying his child, the same goes. It's a very vulnerable time. And so 
any feedback of stress, whether it's physiological or psychological, to us on a cellular level feels like we're about to be eaten by a tiger. Right which is definitely not a good idea to either be pregnant or fall pregnant, which is exactly why libido goes down with stress mm. as well. And we know too that stress hormones also reduce um, FSH in men and reducing sperm count as well. And so stress management is key. And then when you think about um, all of the patients engaging with IVF and the pressure that is on them and the impact of the stress hormones there, even if they were to just be informed of the other things that are in their control would probably take a lot of pressure off. And ultimately, I would personally like to see, and I'm sure you would agree, the day come where uh, fertility clinics are working hand in hand. I have no doubt that for many couples or many women looking to conceive, IVF will become redundant. Mm. Uh, but I would also expect to see success rates, the true success rate, as in taking the fertilized embryo to full term and having a healthy baby who is, as you say, fit for the rigors of real life. Um, I would imagine those numbers would increase exponentially with appropriate diet and lifestyle intervention as well. There's one patient I can remember, three years of attempts for um, assisted fertility. They recognised, oddly, that she was a homozygous methylene tetrahydrofolate reductase person, oh. but they gave her five milligrams of folic acid. Wow. And the five milligrams of folic acid, apart from the dosage, which we may question, but folic acid is not the thing to do. And in three weeks after changing to methylfolate, after having a, maybe something more appropriate for that cycle, the yeah. pregnancy not only occurred naturally, but went on and persisted through the first you know, three months afterwards. Sometimes wow. the simplest answers have to be instituted. They're not too simple for a fertility clinic. The clinic yeah. got part the way, but it didn't get <laughs> that extra distance to say, oh, and what is the biochemistry here? Well, I guess it's why what makes this particular seminar that I'm delivering with Denise so rewarding because yeah. there is a huge gap in education and, of course, execution of this information. And I think it's really important when you are looking at genetic polymorphisms and or mutations, if you want to call them that, is you know what to do with them <laughs> when you identify them. Right. And and you know certainly in the case of MTHFR, giving five milligrams of folic acid is not <laughs> what you want to be doing. No, I've got to. I mean, we need to be careful. Mutation in one sense, but these are mainly what we're dealing with is the uh, single nu nucleotide polymorphisms. There's yes. a different type of thing, women who've had uh, exposure to radiation or carcinogens, even though the eggs are relatively well protected, there are other types of mutation that we have to separate a little bit from these. So, and the reason yes. I say it is the SNPs are part of our evolutionary history, whereas those, yes. the aggressive mutations where pieces of DNA are set fly, they're, yes. a, they're a different kind of injury, aren't they? They certainly are a different kettle of fish. I do want to come back to something you said earlier about your history with organochlorines and um, other environmental pollutants. Denise shared with me something very interesting about how these chemicals can actually attach to DNA. They're called right. DNA adducts. Yes. And they also affect the expression of that gene, even if the gene is 
if you want to say healthy or normal or your normal wild type expression. Right. And so again, it you know, when people blame DNA for stuff, obviously there are some key things that cause really serious mutations. Yeah. But with the DNA you've been given, it's almost like playing a game of cards. <laughs> if you know how to work with what you've been given, there is so much that diet and lifestyle can do to influence the way they are expressed. And when you think about it, DNA is really a blueprint passed on to us that is maps out the way in which we basically tells us what the environment's like and how we need to be able to respond to it in order to survive. And so by cleaning up our bodies, we can then really optimize genetic expression and, again, produce the best possible outcome for our offspring. I, I sometimes think DNA, you know, the idea of a blueprint can be a bit deterministic. I've called it a menu. It's like going to a, a restaurant <laughs> and you've got, you know, 23,000 items on the menu and the expression or the utilization of them is accounted for by so many other factors. So yes. if you don't have fatal mutations, you are, by definition, an evolutionary success. But from that menu, it seems that if we work at it, that we can keep the ones that would have negative health effects under control and we can promote the ones that have very positive health effects. So yeah. a genetics is more what we select. And if we know a little more about it, evolution itself does that. You know, we choose our foods. We love carotene, carotenoids. We have that we choose our food, which is really the way of manipulating our own DNA through diet. And mm. I think we're learning more about how it's how it's organized, what expresses it, and what we can do at the subtle levels, whether with mm. supplementation, food, stress management. It's just mm. the most exciting time that we're not stuck with <laughs> DNA that's just crappy. And mm -hmm. you have to say to a person, I'm sorry, you can't be fertile because of crappy DNA. What mm -hmm. we have is everybody's alive. And if you can find your weak spots and cover them and find your strengths and bring them to the fore... It seems like fertility and health go together. Absolutely, they do. What a brilliant way of putting it. Well, well I, I didn't invent that way of thinking about it, but I, it does strike me that fertility is not different than life and healthy life and fertility, that what we know about the DNA, what we know about diet, what we know about environment helps us to make decisions. But mm. at the deepest level, I think women have a fundamental, if we don't crush their belief systems, have a fundamental ability to know what's good and bad for a baby and what's good and bad for them. And yes. us white males that have run the world making pesticides saying, see, no harm anywhere. Mm. We don't have the subtlety of that appreciation. A pregnant woman is not fragile. They're brilliantly resilient, but they make choices that are incomprehensible to a male. And those choices seem to keep on bringing about babies. What we're stuck <laughs> with now is they can't get pregnant because of an environment and a diet and other factors that are, you know, difficult to put together. But oh. it does seem like the hope is there for fertility now. Absolutely. And I think the more we understand the epigenetics, uh, you know, mm. that we have in our power to manipulate through diet and lifestyle, I think, you know, applied widely, we should see a shift and a, a turn in the statistics of, yeah. you know, fertility in both men and women. Yeah, well, it's amazing that information and available information and the fact that many of the women that I see already knew what was good and was not good for them. They mm. Deep down, they know that birthing vaginally 
even though doctors believe it's you know nicer and neater to do a cesarean, birthing vaginally has its advantages. Mm. That mm-hmm. breastfeeding has its advantages. I came through a time where I, as a young doctor, told people that breast milk was inadequate for mm. the nutrients that were needed for a baby. And I look back and think, how could I ever have believed that? What a, what a crazy thought that a cow could raise a baby better than a mother. But it, mm. it does give you a bit of an idea about how far down that technical slope we went thinking that mothers were incompetent. And all the time, mm. they knew better than we doctors did how to become pregnant and raise babies. Yes, and, and I think that's another, I guess, nod to where medicine has come from and perhaps restoring women's connection to themselves and supporting their intuition yep. is also going to be a big part of restoring a lot more than just fertility and health, let's be honest. But, yes. you know, that we see reports almost weekly of women who knew something was wrong with their child. They were turned away from hospital and the child dies or ends up severely injured as a result of, you know, um, medical professionals determining that they knew best. And um, certainly, you know, with social conditioning and constructs, women have not been supported to be empowered and in charge. And and I think um, in spite of all of that, we continue to try. I know. <laughs> and, uh, and certainly when it comes to pregnancy, I think there's no time more where a woman is most called to step into doing what she feels is right. And certainly I think with this change of tide, we're going to see more and more women feeling that inner strength and tuning into that intuition and really driving um, what's best for them and their baby. And certainly, you know, in light of the panels of polymorphisms that we've been doing recently, it's interesting to see um, prior to knowing their genetic polymorphisms, many women have already figured out the nutritional and diet and lifestyle interventions that had them feel best. And then you see it on, you know, on paper in black and white, there's a polymorphism here and therefore these are what you should be doing. In most cases, most of the time women have already arrived at that same conclusion. And so it's actually really incredible to um, see the data mirror that intuitive move to working out what's best for that individual. To raise a baby, uh, I mean, there's the whole thing about does a community raise a baby, but that intimate relationship with uh, bringing to life a new baby has got such a profound intuitive side to it that I think Mm. it actually scares us doctors, that we Mm. think everything is rational, that we can work it out. Mm -hmm. But to create life from pretty well nothing (laughs) is an extraordinary ability, which if intuition were not good, we wouldn't be here. And the idea that we practice evidence-based birthing processes with less than 50 years behind us, two generations at the most, and women have practiced evidence-based reproduction and bringing healthy babies into the world for the million years before. I think we, we have discounted the very people who can deal with complexity, whereas we male doctors have a tendency to think like the students we were, a problem to be solved, here's the answer to it. And it's Mm. not complex and it doesn't incorporate environment. It just incorporates the kind of small snippets that we know about. I think the future Mm. is with women that if we do well with fertility, we will do well with health. Until we hand fertility back to women and the understanding of the whole of life, whole of environment, whole of stress, 
I don't see us getting very far with fertility as a kind of a sideshow of uh, the medical tricks that we can do. No, I, I agree. And certainly you're only going to find evidence if you've gone looking for it. Yes. And you only go looking for evidence within the paradigm of your own understanding. And so, you know, I think quantum physics is probably a lot further <laughs> down the road <laughs> um, in many ways. And perhaps they will reveal, you know, the the mathematical, black and white, scientific explanation for intuition, if you want to call it that. Um, but until then, yes. um, we we have to feel our own way and, and hopefully just remain open to everybody doing the same. That's going to keep <laughs> us boys very interested, and you know, we we can play with our toys and computers and big data all that we like. Or women get on with the job of ensuring the survival of the species. I think it's an excellent way to go. Amy, it has been delightful to talk with you. I am sure we will talk again. I'm keen to see how your mystery tour ends up and what feedback you bring back to us in the future. Oh, thank you very much, Mark. It's been lovely speaking with you. Thanks, Amy. It's been great. Don't forget to visit fxmedicine.com.au for today's show notes, extra research and other resources.